Welcome to Healthy Body, Healthy Mind. This is a podcast series from the Faculty of Health at UTS, otherwise known as the University of Technology, Sydney, in Australia. In this series, we'll be looking at some of the groundbreaking work being conducted by health researchers at UTS. I'm your podcast host, William Verity. In this episode, we're looking at a subject of deep concern to all of us, death. Impact is a centre at UTS that conducts clinical trials in palliative care and other settings. How do we make our last days more comfortable? I'm not God. By the time they get referred to me, it's because they've got an illness. And that my goal is to keep them comfortable. And if I've done that, then I've done my job and I'm at peace with myself. Funnily enough, I'd never heard of palliative care, honestly, 10 years ago. And I was completing part of my GP training and this opportunity came up to work as a palliative care registrar for a year. And I said, oh, well, okay. And I did. That would, I say, be the life-changing moment where I thought, this is what I want to do. A couple of things that I remember was, one was they had a little courtyard and one Saturday I went down to visit Jane and they had about 30 people out there and there were a couple who were renewing their marriage vows before one of them died. And the other one was on a Wednesday evening when I went in there and in the common room they had a table set up with a candlelit dinner for two for a patient and their partner. So that's the sort of place it was. Sometimes it's a bit of an uphill battle to say why palliative care research is important and actually what it actually is and that people are often put off by the conversation about death and dying and don't want to engage in a scientific discussion about this area. As we come in, we are received by a doctor and I think that as we go, we should be sent off by a doctor as well. That's why I chose to do palliative care. Professor Mira Agar, I'm the director of the Impact Centre here at the Faculty of Health, University of Technology, Sydney, and I'm also the chair of Cancer Symptom Trials, one of the national collaborative trial groups that we coordinate from UTS. Palliative care is not necessarily an area where people naturally think of research. We think about curing cancer and finding a better way to treat stroke or heart attack. But improving people's lives, I think people assume it's just common sense and that we should know how to do this. My view about the end of life is it's about living well. A lot of people who react to when I say I work in palliative care often say that must be depressing and you know you're working with people who are dying and I actually say look I'm actually working with people who are living just like you and I. I learn a lot more from my patients and the people that I talk with through my research than they probably gain from interacting with me and I think it's that wealth of experience and seeing people's lives transform in terms of the pain relief can transform someone from being unable to participate in life at all to being able to engage with their loved ones and family. So I think the work we do, the research we do, can be really transformative in people's lives that are really precious. 
time where there's really only one chance to get it right. And if you can do that, it's really quite amazing. So we know that a number of existing drugs that are used in other clinical settings have application in terms of symptom control. So a good example would be um, antidepressants, for example, are used for nerve pain. But we don't completely understand the best way to use those medications, the doses, uh, which um, patients benefit from it the most and also which patients may get some side effects. And so we do trials to compare particular approaches to using those medicines for the purpose of, say, controlling nerve pain in someone living with cancer. We do a range of clinical research in palliative care trying to improve the quality of life of people living with life-limiting illness. And that ranges from understanding the experience of people with palliative care diagnoses, but also interventions that aim to improve either the symptoms that they're experiencing and also the care that they're receiving. There's sensitivities around working with people at this phase of their life and sometimes Research programs don't always progress in a smooth, straightforward way. There's always roundabouts that need to be worked through in working with these groups of patients for natural reasons that they're unwell and have other priorities as well in their lives. What advice would you give to people how best to treat someone who is in their last stage of life? I think realising that the discomfort is usually sitting with us and not the person talking to us. And so just being comfortable sitting with discomfort and comfortable sitting with silence and just getting used to that experience and realising it's our experience, not something that that person themselves is experiencing and that shutting that down really shuts out the opportunity that that person can explore with you and and, know that wealth of relationship that can come out of progressing through that if you can just sit with that discomfort for a short period of time. Yeah, that it can be and is, from what I'm hearing from you, it's a real privilege Mm -hmm. to deal with people who are in this stage of life, that things become clear in some ways. And people do open up to people that they trust. And so for some reason, if someone is starting to talk with you, there's something about you and the relationship you have with them that they already feel that element of trust. And you, I think, have to go with that and trust your own skills and experience to say that there's some reason they want to have this conversation. Mm. Let's just go with this and see where it leads us. And I think you'll be surprised how you can respond if you can just sit with that for a little while. We have a consumer advisory panel that works in partnership with all our research at IMPACT, particularly with our clinical trials. And that group is really involved right from the ideas generation through developing our grant proposals, our funding submissions, and then as we develop the proposal itself... And so, you know, sometimes they come with their own idea to say, you know, you're really not tackling this problem. Where's the research program that's addressing carers, for example? And what are the important things that we need to be trying to solve from their perspective? But sometimes uh, an idea can be profoundly changed through consumers really providing some insightful feedback really at the beginning and changed uh, for the better.
if you've got all researchers, it's all very technical, but there's no humanity attached to it. And the bottom line is, as it is with palliative care, the patients are the ones you they're the ones you've got the most to lose. I've got the utmost admiration for the doctors, the work they do, but when push comes to shove, when that patient dies, they just move on to somebody else. You know, it's the patient who's got the skin in the game, not the doctors. My name's John Clements. I live on the Mornington Peninsula near Melbourne. I first became involved in palliative care six years ago as my wife, who had pancreatic cancer, approached the end of her illness. I'm a member of their impact group that was improving palliative care and aged care through clinical trials and translation. I'm also a member of CST, which is the, the Cancer Symptom Trials Group, and the PAC-C, which is the Palliative Care Studies Collaborative. Through my dealings with impact, that was how I got involved with Cancer Symptom Trials and the Palliative Care Studies Collaborative, which are run by somebody else who is based at UTS. I was introduced to palliative care in early 2016 when my wife reached that stage of her illness which was pancreatic cancer. We both knew that her condition was terminal and up to that point we'd been involved with chemotherapy and she found that very difficult and in fact we she ended up stopping that in November 2015 because she just couldn't handle it anymore. The first thing that struck me was the warmth of the place. It was a, a very welcoming place. You've got a little common room you know, where people can mix if they want to. Some of the people are bed-bound but yeah most people are able to get up and go get a cup of tea or whatever. One of the things that struck me as really nice as we found out later on was that they had a, uh, a Himalayan salt lamp near the entrance and that was always lit after somebody had died and been taken away which I thought was a very nice touch. You know it's difficult to paint a picture to somebody who's never been to a place like that because with the sort of situation that you have, I mean, everybody there is going to die in the short term. There were only 22 beds, and I think the worst day was five people died in one day. But the whole place is just full of love and compassion and empathy, and it's just terrific. So yeah, I, I found it marvellous. The last 36 hours, 46 hours, she was pretty much unconscious as she was just sitting up in bed and making this sort of uh, snoring noise. She actually died on a Monday morning and I visited her with some other people on the Sunday and then I went home, fed our two dogs and then went back. Uh, well, actually, when I got home, they, they rang me and said, don't hang around too long, you need to come back. And I said, yeah, I'll be there shortly. And... So I got back there at about 11 o'clock Sunday night and they made a bed up for me in the room because they knew that the end was near.
And about three o'clock Monday morning, I put the light out to get some sleep, and I woke up at about five, five thirty, and she was sort of flailing her arms around, and you know, seemed to be in some distress. And I know that she had said to me that when it gets towards the end, could you make sure you speak to me because they reckon that hearing is the last thing to go. And so I went out, I thought it seemed to me that she was in pain. So I went out to reception and I said, can you just come and have a look? I think she might need a shot. The nurse came and said, yeah, yeah, I'll go get some morphine. So she gave her a shot and because of the situation with her having this snoring uh, thing, her mouth was all dry and she'd actually closed her mouth for the first time in about 24 hours. And the nurse came back with a glass of water and one of those sticks for wet lips and that with a little sponge and that. And I remember she said to her, she sort of said very loudly, Jane, Jane, open your mouth. And she went, and she opened her mouth so she could obviously hear. I stayed with her till about 7, 7.30. Then I had to go home and give the dogs their breakfast. That was when I got the call when I got home and they said, don't hang around, you know, things are moving on. And I ended up, I got back there about half nine, quarter to ten, and I walked in and I said, is she still with us? And they said, no, she's gone. And that was it, and she's gone. What's a good death? A good death would be one where I wouldn't say that I was pain-free, but I could be as comfortable as possible and be able to be in my own home, in my own bed, with the people that I loved. And I think in general, that's what most people feel would be a good death. I'm Dr. Amy Chow, the Palliative Care Director at Brayside Hospital. Brayside Hospital is a subacute hospital in Prairiewood, New South Wales. We're right next to Fairfield Hospital and we are an affiliated hospital with uh, New South Wales Health, even though we're actually under the Hammond Care umbrella. So we have 20 palliative care beds in our specialist unit. It consists of eight single rooms and three shared rooms with four beds in each room. What's the standard length of stay in the palliative care? Look, it varies because we are a subacute unit. It can be anywhere from days to even very short months. Funnily enough, Mira used to be the director of palliative care here at Brayside some years back. And since then, she's also had a long working relationship with Southwest Sydney, who we are affiliated with. We help selected clinical trials, so not all the clinical trials are held here because not every trial is also suitable for a specialist palliative care unit. And we also work with IMPACT and UTS with the Rapid Data series collections as well. What is the Rapid Data series? That's run by UTS and they have little working groups on certain topics. So say, for example, constipation or pain or methadone, things that might be interesting to know what the effects or side effects of certain medications or certain interventions, as we would say. 
Thank you for listening to Healthy Body, Healthy Mind, a podcast made for the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. This podcast was made in collaboration with Impact Welcome to Studios Healthy Body, Healthy Mind. To hear this more is a great podcast podcasts series from the Faculty of and Health at UTS, otherwise known as the University of Technology in Sydney, audio. In this series, we'll be looking Impact at some of the groundbreaking work UTS. being conducted by health researchers I'm at William UTS. I'm William Verity. This episode, we're looking at some strange bedfellows. What happens when health and economics cross paths? Who decides how best to spend our limited resources when it comes to treating disease and saving lives? And what's it like to be told that you'll never have sex again? I have a story I always like to tell, particularly students of health economics, of something that happened to me. This was back when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. I was on a plane coming back to Sydney and I was working away on a document and I had an elderly couple next to me and the entire flight they kept looking over at me and whispering and I'm thinking, oh no, they work for competitors. You know, they're looking at what I'm doing and they're competitor agents. end of the flight the wife turned to the husband and said go on go on speak to him he finally turned to me and he said excuse me but are you working on that drug for chronic myeloid leukemia I said yes I am and he said did you work on it when it was funded I said yes I did can I ask why and he said well our son had chronic myeloid leukemia and he was given very little time to live and then he went on that drug and it saved his life. And at that point, his wife and he both started to cry, and I kind of welled up, and I got this big lump in my throat, and I was a bit lost for words. But it really just brought home to me, this is why I do what I do. I can help affect people's lives and I can make a difference to people who I don't even know. That gives me satisfaction. So yes, I love what I do. Associate Professor Richard Diabru Lorenzo. I'm a health economist. So I started life as a financial economist in the Reserve Bank 30 years ago now. I really wanted to do something that was more connected to people and had a more direct impact on people's lives and our day-to-day living. And that's what drew me to health and health economics because that was a really great intersection between my love of understanding how we make better use of scarce resources. That's what economics is all about. But also my love of health and medical science. I have impact in what I'm doing. And I don't mean that in any kind of egotistical way. I can sit back at night and I can see a story on the news and I can think, wow, I worked on that. I helped in some way. It might have been infinitesimally small, but I had some role in playing in getting that particular medication or that particular 
device made accessible to patients. Predominantly what I do is to look at how we use our healthcare resources, our dollars, and see whether or not we can use them in a better way to provide healthcare, get people access to the drugs, the medical services and the technologies that they need to make them better. I'm also more than happy to sit and be immersed in numbers and play with those numbers and be able to produce a journal article at the end of it that then communicates to people, actually, this is what we've been able to demonstrate. This is the value of this particular product and this is how we can help patients in the end to live better. I'm a data nerd, so a good day for me is where I get to work with some form of data collection or data analysis. That might be working with patients or working with clinicians to understand what's happening to them in terms of accessing healthcare or the delivery of healthcare. I get a real buzz out of that. I enjoy speaking to people. I enjoy understanding what's happening to them and what matters to them. So that kind of primary data collection and getting to the nub of what's happening is a great day for me. At our centre, and that's the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation, here at UTS as part of the Faculty of Health, we work very closely with the Department of Health through much of the work we do. We have a very large program of work that works with government on actually evaluating applications that the government receives for the funding of healthcare. There are certainly health economists within the department, but they are so busy that they just can't take on the extra amount of work that's involved to do this. So they have expert bodies like ours outside of government to assist them in providing the advice that they need. We're involved in a trial at the moment which is using a particular diagnostic measure, something called PSMA-PET, and what it's doing is trying to use that earlier in the diagnosis of prostate cancer so that we can reduce the number of men who have to have biopsies of the prostate to rule out actually having prostate cancer. And I know that that would be a boon for many men who undergo unnecessary biopsies, as happens at the moment. Louise Emmett is absolutely inspiring. She's doing a lot of cutting-edge work, particularly around diagnostics and scanning, and a new area of research in cancer called theranostics. Now, this is a new way of using radioisotopes and particular ligands to look at the body and understand what's happening at a lower level than we can with other diagnostic techniques. The project I'm working on with Louise is an important project auspiced by ANZUP, the trial group, and the name of the project is Primary 2. Louise Emmett is absolutely inspiring. To watch her come to a problem formulate a solution and then work you through how you're going to get to the end of whatever it might be is amazing. She is truly, truly inspiring to watch and fantastic to work with. I'm Louise Emmett. I'm a doctor. I run the Theranostics and Nuclear Medicine Department at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney and I'm a professor at University of New South Wales. Richard's got a very good handle on health economics and if I am going to persuade a government to help me fund things so that we can improve the quality of lives of men with prostate cancer, we need great health economics. We can't just say 
oh, this is fantastic. Look what it does. Look at this image. You know, you've got to fund this. We have to prove it is is cost effective. When we go to these government organisations, we've got to go there with health economics behind us to prove that what we're doing is valuable to patients. I actually think it's critical to getting care to vulnerable patients includes health economics, must include health economics. And if we're not doing trials that involve health economics, we're idiots. Because when you introduce very expensive new technologies, you actually have to know that they're cost effective and you have to know that they benefit the patients, that their patients' outcomes actually improve. And to do that well, you need to embed health economics into trials. For a researcher and as a doctor, it's just the most fantastic thing to be involved in. I just think it's fun. It's a really fun thing to be doing. Richard and I probably have met almost exclusively on Zoom. So we meet in trial meetings, we discuss protocols together, we send a lot of emails. For me, Richard's a great collaborator. He's extremely effective, friendly, proactive, but I don't know him well personally. And how long have you been working with him? Gee, it must be about five years. And I've never been to UTS. And I wouldn't know where Cher is. We're just busy, right? I actually have a clinical full-time job. The research is done in the spare time. The first trial that we were involved in was the primary trial, which is about the diagnosis of prostate cancer. And then we're doing the randomised trial, which is randomised between whether or not a patient gets this new PET technology to help diagnose prostate cancer versus getting standard of care. Then we're both involved in a trial called DIPA, which is about de-intensification of treatment in men who have biochemical recurrence following radical prostatectomy. Then we're doing the NCP trial. So NCP is the randomised trial of treatment using standard of care versus treatment using the brand spanking new thing that we're doing. We were both also involved in therapy. So therapy is a trial comparing chemotherapy to this new treatment that we've been doing. It was a randomised trial. I think that's largely the trials that we've been doing that have involved health economics with Richard. I don't just deal with early prostate cancer or men who are not yet diagnosed. I also deal right at the other end, which is men who are dying from prostate cancer or who have metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer have very significant pain. And in that situation, we're using a very expensive treatment where we're using a nuclear warhead that we attach to this peptide and we inject it and deliver radiation directly to the cell. That's much more expensive. And then it's far more difficult to determine what is the value of a pain-free six months or 12 months? What is the value of a 67-year-old getting to see their daughter be married or being able to have quality of life for the last year of their life? That's a much trickier thing and that's something that we're also doing with Richard, looking in our trials like NZP's a randomised trial where we're looking at two different agents and we're looking at health economics with that. Have you had experience of having to withhold treatment from patients on the basis of cost? Yes, I do. And I have patients on my floor praying so that I can try and get them to afford treatment that I can't give them because I don't have it available. They don't fit onto a trial and the government does not fund it. 
It's a big driver in what I do. It pushes me a lot. It's not blinded because when you inject radiation, it's pretty hard to be blind because, in fact, we image the radiation afterwards. And if they were on a placebo, we wouldn't see anything on the scan. So <laughs> pretty, pretty hard to be blind. So no, I have a very good idea what they're on. So when you do randomised trials, because you have to prove benefit, there has to be someone on the bad arm or the arm that you don't believe in. They often do badly and they're really helping society in terms of determining whether or not we should change how we treat. So you have to have equipoise when you do a study. And once again, it's actually difficult for men on randomised trials. It's hard putting men on randomised trials. Some of those men don't do well. I have the unfortunate habit of sabotaging my own trials. Quite often if a patient's failing badly on a trial, then we try and take them off the trial and move their treatments um, sometimes to what we call a crossover, which is where you offer the new experimental agent to the patient off trial immediately after they exit, having been on the standard of care arm. That's a bit of a failing of mine because I do impact the results probably, but it makes you feel a lot better. The thing that really keeps you awake is you do these trials to change practice. You do these trials to change the world and the trials have to be good enough to do that. You have to try and stop these men from begging on your floor. Uh, it, look, it's very rewarding if you can do that. It's a good goal. Yeah, there were dark times. Of course there were dark times. Fear of death is there, there's no question. There is a fear of death, of course there is. There are times when you think about the consequences, you think about your relationships, you think about, can I still go to rugby on Saturday? It was the neurologist and he said, I've got your results back and there's clear margin and it's terrific and I think you're going to be okay. Two or three hours later, I had absolutely convinced myself that I'd imagined that phone call completely and that it didn't happen. So the mind works in strange ways. I'm Ray Allen. I am the Deputy Chair of the Consumer Advisory Panel within a clinical trials group known as ANZUP, which is Australia, New Zealand, Urogenital and Prostate Clinical Trials Group. It's a cooperative trials group where trials into genital urinal cancers are conducted but instigated by the clinicians, not by drug companies, and so it does bear that mark of independence. I call it my Friday afternoon. I had an increased PSA level and my local doctor did some other tests and packed me straight off to a urologist. Did the biopsy in the urologist rooms and he said, you've got prostate cancer and we can't treat it conservatively. And I was in my early recovery phase and my urologist had a bit of a sly grin on his face and he said, what are you doing in your retirement? He said, I think I've got something you'd like. From there, it's history. 
following day at ANZOP Scientific Advisory Committee, uh, their annual meeting, and that was it. From then on, I was suddenly a consumer advisor. I prefer to think of it as patient advocacy. Not directly advising people, but creating the environment by working on the clinical trials, giving suggestions early in the piece about how a trial might be worked, or indeed, what is important to people in their ongoing life. I knew nothing about my prostate, where it was, what it was, what it did. And I think I'm pretty typical of a lot of men and a lot of the people I know now who sneak up to me having had their Friday afternoon and ask a question about the diagnosis they've just had. I came to a fairly comfortable truce with it all. One, I decided to learn a bit more about it. And when I looked, there was plenty of stuff. I did that big weighing up of one's life. And I decided that this was not really much more, to me at least, than a broken arm or a, a whacked ankle. I had so many good things in my life. My life was so big. Thinking about sex at, at that age of 62 was, it's been fun, but it doesn't go on forever. And I think in reality, I came to grips with the view that my life was just so big and so much happening and so many good things that I resisted the temptations to go and look at rehabilitation strategies, which are pretty awful. I know of one guy who's had two uh, erectile implants and he's worn one out. But I actually would describe an individual patient's health as their working capital. And that to me gives the dimension of health economics to a patient at a personal level. And I think I can sort of say as a man of 72, the quality of life is a pretty important factor. And it comes into the weighting of what might be presented to me as a treatment decision. If you look at health economics, I see it as being generally viewed as a purchasing decision, a resourcing decision, and then very likely and unfortunately, a rationing decision. The answer is you can still do an awful lot and if it recurs later, well, something's going to get you one day. Life is going to throw some curve ball at you at some point. Thank you for listening to Healthy Body, Healthy Mind a podcast made for the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. This podcast was made in collaboration with Impact Studios at UTS. To hear more great podcasts and to learn how Impact Studios can help you turn your research into engaging audio, simply Google Impact Studios UTS. I'm William Verity. And what we do is we collect the data of 
the demographics of patients, what disease they have, where they are in their stage of their journey. So say, for example, if they were constipated, if we started them on certain medications, what are the effects after one day, after certain time points? And those are the data that we collect until the end time point before we submit it to the subcommittee. We are now looking at two new different trials. The first one that has just recently opened is called the IMBO study, and that is looking at crushed oral famotidine in patients with bowel obstruction. And the second study that hasn't opened yet, but we are hopeful will be opening soon once all the paperwork and administrative side of things have been completed is the Namisol study, which is looking at cannabis in anorexia, which is the loss of appetite in palliative care patients. What, so giving people medicinal cannabis in order to stimulate their appetite? That's correct, mm. Mm. yes. Some people are really happy because they say, look, if it can't help me, at least it'll help someone else in the future. And some people, understandably, would prefer to focus on their, their journey, their family, rather than be part of a trial. So you do get mixed views. The other problem is, obviously, with some of the patients, they may be cognitively good one day, but they could be confused the next. And so it's very hard then to gauge whether information that we're getting back from them is accurate or not. My hope is that by changing my own mindset, by hopefully trying to encourage research, that there'll be more treatments to help make patients comfortable. So not save their lives, but just be comfortable in their final days um, or their final months of their life. It's my job is to make their experience as, as least hard as it possibly can be for them. There are some patients that also probably I resonate more with and there are some that I don't. And the ones that I resonate more with, I tend to debrief with my colleagues a bit more and we might talk about them. It's just a challenge of life and death. It's, it's unfortunately no one escapes death. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. My name is Dr. Davinia Sia. I'm a palliative care physician at Sacred Heart. I see patients who generally have life-limiting illnesses. At the moment, the vast majority that I see are in the nursing home. I spend a lot of my time doing a PhD at the moment, but I'm also involved in helping identify patients for trials to try and improve palliative care access. Palliative care is such a difficult field to do research on because patients are dying, they're vulnerable. We think that we're doing the best for them by giving them certain medications and it might have worked for one patient but we don't know whether it works for the majority of patients. And by doing these trials, when we have randomised trials, so one person gets the drug, one person gets a placebo and the clinician doesn't actually know what the patient got, that's more objective rather than being biased. We hope with all our heart that the drug works, but maybe it didn't, but maybe it might be something else. Whereas with a randomised control trial, the two patients, you, you don't actually know what drug they got. So it's a more objective measure of whether 
a drug actually made a difference for a patient. I do think a little bit about death. I see patients who come in and have the whole family behind them. And I see patients who come in and die alone. And I do wonder, how has this patient lived their life? I do believe that how you die is how you live. And that has made me a little bit more conscious about how I spend my time. Do I want to spend my time all at work? Or do I want to be conscious about spending time in my community and investing in the lives of the people around me? But I do hope that there will be people around me does make you try and think about what's important in life. You know, we've all got one life, how are you living it? I think it makes us a little bit more human when we see another human pass away. Yeah. And I ended up, I got back there about half nine, quarter ten, and I walked in and I said, is she still with us? And they said, no, she's gone. And that was it, she was gone. Do you remember the last words you said to her? See you later. That, that, should, that should be on the headstone, shouldn't it, really? <laughs> it should really, yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to Healthy Body, Healthy Mind, a podcast made for the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. This podcast was made in collaboration with Impact Studios at UTS. To hear more great podcasts and to learn how Impact Studios can help you turn your research into engaging audio, simply Google Impact Studios UTS. I'm William Verity.